Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Do you need some help with your happiness or achieving your goals? Go to BetterHelp Online Counseling and get in touch with a licensed professional therapist in under 24 hours. No waiting rooms, no traffic. You do this online in a safe and private environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so you can change counselors if necessary at no additional cost. This service is available for clients worldwide. Financial aid is available. These are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, you name it. Anything you share is confidential. This is a convenient, professional, affordable service. And best of all, as a listener of this program, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash other P-P-L. All right? Okay. Hello. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Show. It's good to be with you. I am uh, talking to you from my garage in Los Angeles, California. I have Brady Hammes on the program today. Brady Hammes is the author of a debut novel called The Resolutions. It is available now from Ballantine Books. Ballantine Books? Ballantine? Ballantine? You know what I mean. Brady Hammes, The Resolutions, out there now and earning rave reviews. Brady Hammes, I should mention, is a friend of mine. We worked together a few moons ago. And I uh, got to know each other. It was kind of this random uh, pairing. You're going to hear us talk about it. And lo and behold, he's a writer. I'm a writer. And we got along swimmingly. So very happy for him to be having this publication success. 
and you're going to hear us in conversation momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Grey Wolf Press, publisher of Postcolonial Love Poem, the new collection by Natalie Diaz. The New York Times Book Review says, quote, Postcolonial Love Poem is no doubt one of the most important poetry releases in years. Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz, available now from Grey Wolf Press. A listener named AJ writes to me. He says, Hey, Mr. Brad, I've been listening to your show for something like over a year now. I skipped around a lot of episodes, but that's just how I am with everything pretty much. Anyway, my main question was actually going to be if you have heard of and how much you have read about the martial arts slash philosophy practice from Japan called Budo. One last question. Have you ever looked up the total human population of the world and just stared at that number until you felt whatever that made you feel trying to really visualize it? That's all, and thanks sincerely a lot for the show. I hope it continues until you die. Best wishes, AJ. So, uh, AJ, no, I have not heard of Budo. But, you know, I'm now, like, looking at the Wikipedia. I'm going to start reading about it. It sounds interesting. I've never taken a martial arts class in my life. I know nothing about it, though I wish I did. I feel like it would be a nice thing to know, like to be really skilled at martial arts. I feel like I would walk through the world differently if that were the case, possibly. Uh, As far as this thing about the uh, human population, I mean, I guess I think about it sometimes. What are we up to now? Seven billion? Somewhere in there? It's too big of a number to really uh, be able to properly visualize, right? It's an abstraction. How does it make me feel? It makes me feel a little nervous, to be honest. It seems like too many people. Like, it's too crowded. Relative to uh, resource availability. Or it's approaching being too crowded. There's a very short, very terrifying book by an author uh, named Stephen Emmett, I believe, called Ten Billion. Have you ever read this book? You can read it in like 15 minutes or like 30 minutes or something. It's a very quick read. But the essential premise is that when the human population on Earth reaches 10 billion, we will cross over into uh, madness. So thanks for writing, AJ. Thanks for listening. If you're out there and you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. My guest today is Brady Hammes. His debut novel, The Rev- uh, Resolutions, is available from Ballantine Books. And uh, just uh, great to talk with him. We were supposed to do this in person, of course. He lives here in Los Angeles, but then uh, COVID hit and uh, we had to talk, you know, over Skype. So here he is, folks. This is Brady Hammes, and his debut novel, once again, is called the resolutions. Well, German, Hamish German, and then uh, Brady is actually my mom's maiden name, and, and that's Irish. So, so Irish, um, Irish German, Irish German, yeah. Where in Germany do you know? Uh, I I don't know exactly. It's like a little town um, uh, right on the border of France. Um, I think it's like Luxembourg almost. I, I don't know. Uh, my dad knows. He looked it up one time. 
Yeah, I just found out. I've been. To, I think I've been talking about this on the show here and there. But I've been doing this project where I interview my aunts and uncles to try to get like an audio record of my genealogy, or just like to to try to capture some of this before, right? You know, we start losing people because you know I don't mean to be morbid, but it's getting there. You know, actuarially, and so I was find, yeah. I was finding out about where I'm from or where my ancestors come from, and it's kind of shocking. Like, I don't know. You never, you, have you ever done one of those, uh, like 22, what is it? 20... I, ha- I haven't. No, I think my mom did, but I haven't done it. Yeah. Did you find out anything interesting? Uh, I don't, I don't even know. I didn't ask her. <laughs> you like don't want to know. I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I, yeah, I, I haven't been that interested in it, but I should be, I guess. I, don't uh, know. I just, I found out that I have, uh, on my mom's side. Uh, I think it's like my great, great, great grandfather who was like the the first, uh, he was like the first person to come over to the States on that side. Okay. Like my mom's dad's side, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that he lived in like either Wisconsin or Minnesota, which is where I'm from and where my wife is from. And then he came down to Louisiana, which is where my mom is from because he was a union soldier in the uh, civil war. Oh, wow. Which gave me like some relief because I had always been afraid to learn. Right. <laughs> like, my ancestors. About that Louisiana connection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was like, okay, so he was a union soldier. This is making me yeah, feel better about my, my, my self-esteem is improving. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, reassuring. <laughs> well, I think we should uh, mention to people before we get too far into this, that you and I actually know each other from a uh, previous work experience. I think, we should probably not mention the company. Like, how, how are you supposed to handle probably these things? Not. Probably not. Um, we'll just say it's a Silicon Valley, uh, um, not startup, but uh, it's a tech, tech, tech company, right? Yeah, and I you think that's big enough. And you work as an editor. Like you have a like you have an interesting and I think a pretty sweet uh, symbiosis going between your writing life and your like day job life because your day job is kind of cool. You edit film. Yeah. Um, I've been a documentary film editor for like 10 years now. And um, it definitely like, you know, informs the writing and the writing informs the editing. And, and uh, yeah, it's it's great as far as day jobs go. How did you get into it? Because to me, it seems like the kind of thing I'm like, I wish I would have thought of that. Like, because it's the kind of job where you don't necessarily get stuck in a nine to five. You can move from project to project you have a fair amount of autonomy. Like even if you're working for somebody, I don't know, like you're kind of, you're kind of in a dark room by yourself cutting film. Right. (laughs) And it fits my personality, you know, like, like most writers probably, that's what I love about it is, you know, so much of filmmaking is collaborative, especially if you're on set, but editing is kind of just the opposite in that you are just stuck by yourself in a dark room um, with the footage. I mean, there's a director obviously who comes in at a certain point, but, um, you know, for the most part, it's just you sort of wrestling with this mountain of footage and, and trying to give it some shape and some structure. And, um, yeah, I, I love it. And like you said, it, it allows me, you know, I'll work on a project for, you know, if it's like a feature film for six months or seven months sometimes, but then, you know, I'll have a, a break of, you know, weeks or a couple months where I can then just like switch back to writing and, and just focus on that full time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's like I said. As far as day jobs go, it's it's pretty great. So is it is that how you wrote the resolutions? You would write it in these little pockets of time in between like film editing gigs. 
Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, like I, I try not to completely like abandon a project just because I'm editing, but it is much easier, you know, when you have those uninterrupted blocks of time. Um, and uh, but yeah, that's that's sort of been my process for the last few years or for the last ten years, actually. So is that how long it took to write the book? I mean, I I think I started it in 2011 and then um, uh, worked on it for probably five or six years and then got an agent and worked on it for another like almost two years and then sold it in 2018. So it's been nine years, but I haven't really been working on it that, I mean, I have been, but not, you know, full time. But sometimes I think that might be good. Like I kind of oscillate on this. Like, uh, uh, like one day I'll be like, you know what? I just really need to be able to lock in all the way, all the time to get something done. And then other days I'll be like, you know what? It's actually good to ventilate things a little bit and not get so close to the TV. That's kind of the metaphor I use where like the, you get image distortion and it's just, a, you're, you're too tight uh, up against the the project that you're working on. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is nice to, um, you know, switch gears and work on someone else's story too, because, you know, when you're editing, like you, you feel a certain sense of ownership, but only up to a point, you know, it's not your film. You're just serving someone else's vision and, uh, and ideas. And, and so, you know, it's nice to like, you know, put the book aside and, and, you know, use a, not a different part of my brain, but just a different project, you know, a different creative endeavor. So no, you talked about having like this mountain of footage that you deal with when you're working in film editing and especially in documentary editing where the, the ratio is so large between what you shoot and what you use. Typically you tend to shoot a lot more film on a documentary than you do on a, uh, like a narrative feature film. And so I'm wondering if uh, I got to imagine that the, the process of dealing with that mountain of footage and having to kind of pare it away and build some kind of, uh, you know, storyline out of it. Uh, that must've been helpful to you, especially considering how much you have going on in the resolutions. Like it's a lot, you're doing a lot in this book and, and, uh, it seems like you had good training to get ready to sort of try to weave all these different plot lines together and to juggle all these different characters and all these far flung locations and, and so on and so forth. So is that, am I on the right track? Do you feel like the film, the film work was helpful? Did you ever get any like concrete insights from, film work when you were, you know, taking a break from the novel or maybe you were at a a crossroads with it or stuck on a certain point? Like, did it ever lead to any breakthroughs by working on somebody else's project? Yeah. uh, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, like you said, with, with the documentary stuff, um, there is just this enormous amount of footage. And so I think like with writing, I, I kind of always start with the structure, you know, I have to know the sort of structure and the way I'm going to tell it. Like, before I really drill down on the details. And, and I think that's, um, a result of, of the documentary film editing, because you have to, you know, you have to sort of have a sense of how all of these disparate pieces are going to fit together. And, um, yeah, I definitely think it, it helps. And the great thing about, you know, with the documentary work is that, um, you know, unlike with writing, you're never like staring at the, at a blank page, you know, you, you actually just have too much of this, this stuff. And and so, like you said, it's more about pairing away and, and being sort of ruthless with the cutting and just, you know, really distilling it down to the essential pieces, you know, that you need to tell the story. And so I think it, um, it, it helps in that regard as well. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, you, like when you're working on a documentary film, sometimes you're working on celebrity-based projects where, like, you know, I don't know, it's like a famous athlete or a famous so-and-so who is the is the subject of the film. As right. the as the editor, you've got to be privy to like all kinds of outtakes and stuff that winds up on the cutting room floor. Like, have, yeah. you, have you seen a lot of embarrassing, potentially embarrassing footage in your day? I mean, not as much as you might think, actually. Um, there's, of course, always the moments where they're like, you can't use that. And then you're like, OK, well, we're going to try and use that because anytime someone tells you not to use something, that means it's pretty good. Um, but, you know, that that is the other issue when you're working on these more personality sort of um, sort of like bio doc things where, you know, there's. There's a little bit of uh, you're serving the per the person who the the subject of the film, you know. So you know you're never gonna you're never gonna it's never gonna be like a takedown or a hit piece if someone is signed on to it. Um, but you so, but you've never seen anything incriminating, is what I'm saying. I mean, not really. Nothing that would that would ruin anyone. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I know. I, but hey, there's time. So yeah, yeah you right. Know, yeah, I just got to keep keep looking so so what now you and i like uh this is like it's it seems sort of seems sort of odd in retrospect that you know you came on to the project that i was working on as the editor we sat down and started talking and it turns out that we're both novelists and both right. literary people which isn't necessarily something that seems likely to happen you know and then yeah not only that but we both spent time in colorado like we've, we've traveled right. some, like and we grew up in the midwest yeah, totally. I know there are a lot of parallels. It's it's very funny. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we worked on that project, and I got the email the day before, and it said Brad Listy, and I was like, "That's got to be the Brad Listy whose podcast I always listen to." And sure enough, it was. It was. Uh, it was. It was pretty awesome. That's, that's strange. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, I like you said, I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I actually grew up all. I I moved like nine times growing up. Um, but wait, most. Why your dad's job or 
Yeah, my dad just got transferred a lot for his job. So, um, you know, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. Then we moved to Sacramento, and then we moved to Fresno, and then Kansas, then Delaware, then Iowa, then or but Iowa, Delaware, then back to Iowa. Um, so, you know, I, it was all over the place. Like I think until I moved, I lived in LA. Uh, let's see, it'll be 20 years next year. Uh, I moved here in 2001. And before that, the longest I'd ever lived anywhere was four years. And that was, uh, in Colorado when I went to college actually. So oh, no shit. I didn't realize what was your dad doing that had him jumping around so much? Uh, he worked in agriculture. And so, you know, that's why a lot of it was in the Midwest. But um, and then sort of segued into like, I don't know, I still don't totally understand everything. But I know he worked in like biofuels and ethanol and, and stuff. But but anyway, it, he was just always getting transferred to different jobs. And so, you know, we moved a lot. And what was that like? I mean, what are the, what's the old uh... Like the old trope is that when you move around a lot as a kid, you wind up having to develop social skills and you have to be able to assimilate quickly and make friends and ingratiate yourself and be entertaining. Yeah, exactly. Was, it, was that you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's you're forced to. I mean, I had I had two brothers um, who I'm pretty close with. And so, you know, they were always there, too. So that was that was helpful. But, yeah, you know, you learn to adapt. And um, but I also think maybe that's why. Like I've been in LA for 19 years because I was like I'm done with that, you know. I just wanted to stay put. So I know I kind of feel that way. Like I I moved not as much as you, but I did move when I was a kid. And um, the one of the problems with it, not only is it just you know create disruptions in your life and cause you to have to you know leave your friends and make entirely new friends and all the rest, is that um, now that I'm an adult, I don't feel like I have a place. Like Los Angeles is as much my place as any place, but you know, people who grew up in one town and their family is there, or at least their parents are there and they have roots in that place. Like that's not something I necessarily have. Right. Yeah. And I, and I don't either. I mean, I, the closest I have is Iowa just because that's where both of my parents, uh, grew up. Uh, they both grew up on farms in, in rural Iowa. And, um, so most of my, extended family at least on my dad's side is in iowa a lot of my mom's uh sisters are actually out in california but um yeah people ask me where i'm from and it's always kind of hard because i i, I don't totally know you know i usually just say iowa just because that's where i went to high school but um that's not really accurate so and you and you said you grew up with two brothers and you like your book is uh, very much about sibling relationships not necessarily just brothers but Right. Um, you said you get along with them well, so I, I like you know I'm I'm fishing for something here, but it sounds <laughs> sounds like you have an okay relationship with your siblings. It's not something like that instigated oh, no. you wanting to explore this in fiction. It's purely imagination. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I have a great relationship with both my brothers, so we're we're super super close. I mean, we don't live in the same in the same states. You know, one is in Colorado and one is actually in Iowa. Um, so I don't see them much except like maybe once a year around the holidays or whatever, but, um, no, we're, we're super close. I mean, there's, the book is not, uh, not autobiographical really. I mean, there's obviously, you know, you're always pulling, pulling from your life, of course, but, um, strictly speaking no. <laughs> so, so what instigated it? I'm always curious. Like, you know, if you have, um, this, these people, these characters in this story that you want to tell, like, do you have any idea 
like, are you able to diagnose it in retrospect, or is this just like some image or some uh, character idea, or was there some uh, you know pre-existing work that served as a kind of foundation or a launching point? Um, sort of. I'm, so you know, there's three the three different characters. One is a ballerina uh, in at this sort of cult-like dance company in Russia. That one, um, you know, a f- like ten years ago. I somehow um, very unexpectedly found myself getting really into ballet. Um, I I would like stay up late watching ballets on YouTube and drinking scotch, and this became like a, a hobby of mine. And I and so I just became fascinated with it and wanted to uh, I wanted to write a story about it. And I wanted it was important that the the character um, she's she's a, a heroin addict, and it was important that the character be like isolated not only because of her drug addiction, but geographically isolated too. So I was like, you know, let's put her as far away as we can. You know, so I, I set that storyline in, uh, in this like little fictional town outside Moscow. And then um, the the storyline around uh, Jonah, who is a graduate student studying elephants in West Africa in Gabon, that one was inspired by the 60-minute special I saw um many years ago about a group of, of research scientists based out of Cornell who do uh, very similar work. They basically study the like vocalization of elephants and then they take that and they've basically uh, created this sort of like elephant dictionary. And they, they've basically been able to realize that elephants are incredibly like emotionally intelligent. You know, they, they mourn their dead. They're, they're fascinating. And, and I thought this work was just totally crazy and interesting. And so that was the spark for that one. Who was the, the, uh, who was the 60 minutes correspondent on that project? Do you remember? Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I don't. Scott Pelley. Morley. Might have been <laughs> Leslie Stahl. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah. It's probably like 10 years ago. I think I saw it. Um, and then with the third storyline, it was, yeah, the, this character is an actor in LA. So that one is like, you know, uh, I, I decided to do something that didn't require quite as much research. So, um, that one's a little closer to home, I guess. Well, not because you've been an actor, but just because you have proximity to the industry. Yeah, exactly. Because I've worked in the industry. Um, you know, it's a little bit about creative disillusionment and whatnot. And those were things that I was sort of, uh, feeling at the time so yeah that one is again not strictly autobiographical but definitely like a little closer to home okay so uh, we need to talk about you drinking scotch and getting into ballet because i did did not know this about you what happened (laughs) so um I, i think i was just writing one night and i'd been listening to a bunch of um uh max richter do you know who he is he's like a composer yeah Yeah. and uh i was like just googling something i was just you know like when you're writing and i just was like i need a break so i started googling him just to learn a little more about him and then i discovered he did this ballet um by this british choreographer named wayne wayne mcgregor he did the music for it basically and um and it was just like eye-opening i mean it was one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen i mean granted i was probably pretty drunk so um (laughs) but uh, but i was just like you know where have you been all my life i was just you know totally taken with this and wait what and was it what was the name of it the ballet it's called infra okay um and uh i actually uh, my wife uh is or was a dancer when she was younger and um she like 
came out one night. I was like, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> she was like, what are you watching? And I was like, ballets. And she's like, huh, okay. <laughs> she's like, you know, we could actually go see that in real life if that's something you're interested in and I was like oh okay so we ended up going and actually seeing that that performance in Chicago and uh, years a couple years later but um but yeah that was like that was just I just stumbled upon it and um you know became the kind of guy who watches ballets late at night on YouTube so damn well you know I I don't have very much experience with ballet but I do have to say the like the physicality of it like the strength of these dancers and um, like seeing people who put themselves through the training that those people have to put themselves through in order to be able to do that yeah, is, it's incredible. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. And yeah. It all, but it also, it has kind of the same, um, uh, effect on me that professional athletes have on me where I'm just like, my God, like yeah. I, I am just a very mediocre human specimen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 my experience with it is, is very much as a just, complete fan you know like yeah i couldn't imagine trying to do it myself but. well and i wonder sometimes too because you know to be really good at that to be maybe really good at anything but especially things as physical as ballet um i don't know if you've been watching this documentary on the bulls are you a basketball fan no but uh not a huge basketball fan but i am familiar with it yeah it's, i've heard it's good right yeah it's great i mean i grew up watching those teams play and like michael jordan was obviously the like the basketball player of our generation like he right, was, he was the guy yeah um and just to, but like you know there was also something kind of opaque about him uh you didn't like his press conferences and the way he sort of handled himself in the public eye he was always very elegant about it, but he didn't let you in necessarily. And so this documentary, they had a camera crew behind the scenes and you sort of get to see what he was like, you know, uh, in practice and dealing with his team and on the bus and in, you know, on the team plane and all this kind of stuff. And everything that I had ever learned about Jordan, um, you know, in the media had led me to believe that he was this cutthroat competitor who was sort of like, you know, just crazy and uh monomaniacal you know in his approach all of which are true but what has been a pleasant surprise is that i really like him yeah. uh in this movie I, I say that with an asterisk because i think he controls the movie like i think he, right he has if he's a producer on it then yeah exactly. yeah so it's not like that you know he's not going to put himself out there looking like anything but the hero but right um right. still though i i kind of found myself um uh, you know yeah. admiring him even more and like and also being like wow this guy's Truly, uh, you know, not only a cut above physically, but in, uh, he's got like great um, basketball intelligence and just like person to person intelligence. He knew how to motivate people, et cetera, et cetera. But the point that I want to make is that, uh, you know, to be like a like an elite ballerina or what do you call an elite uh, male ballet ballerina? What do you call him? <laughs> A ballet dancer? Um, yeah, I actually don't even know. <laughs> yeah, but to be like a an dancer, elite, elite yeah. athlete of any kind or dancer of any kind, you sort of have to give everything to it. And I guess right. the question is like, is writing the same way? Um, I, I suppose like, you know, you can work a day job and write. Most of us have to do that. Um, yeah. You know, but yeah. then I was reading about Otessa Moshfeg and I've interviewed her for this show, but I was reading about her. They did this big feature in the New York Times about yeah, her. Yeah, I read that too, yeah. And it's like, she she just seems like she's just like, that's all she does. You know, she just completely, totally focused only on her writing. That's it, you know? And, yeah, and that's great. I think for most of us, that's not an option, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if you can, yeah. 
yeah. I suppose. But I guess like it doesn't necessarily mean, I don't know. I guess I'm always trying to parse the two things, not only because I wonder uh, like kind of what we were talking about earlier, like, am I giving enough to this? Do I need to lock in totally? But then also there's that issue of talent and just physical, uh, like genetic blessings. Like if you wanted to dance ballet, if you became like, you know, such a fan of it and you wanted to get into it yourself, like there's no chance unless you're born with a certain physical structure and athletic gift. And right, the, and, right. Yeah, there's certain things you can't learn. Yeah. But writing, I exactly. guess, and I've had this conversation before, writing, you know, you can kind of you can kind of grind away at it and get better. Yeah, I think I think uh, probably up to a point, you know, I do think there's a certain amount of talent that great writers have that, you know, no amount of work is necessarily going to get you there if, if you aren't a great writer. But I think ballet is probably similar in that, you know, you it's a combination of natural talent and hard work, you know, and it's what what the uh, the ratio is. I don't know, but it's, I'm sure it's both. What about uh, like, do you go to do you still watch ballet? Like, do you go to the ballet with any kind of regularity? Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually like we were, I was just thinking, uh, the, the last thing that I did, like the last real social activity I did before quarantine was, um, my wife and I went to, uh, the LA dance project, which is like the, the big company in LA. And, uh, yeah, it was wonderful. We went out, it was like, had it made a night of it, went to dinner, went to the ballet and then, uh, and then in the world shut down. So I guess if uh, it was a pretty good last hurrah, so. Damn, yeah, and who knows yeah. when things are going to open up again? Who knows when the next uh, ballet will be? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I was thinking too, like, you know, do you, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have these moments, like most of the time I'm fine, and then every once in a while, like my heart will clench, and I'll be like, when are people ever going to go to the movies again? Like, when is, yeah. there, when is there ever going to be a concert again? You know? I you know. know. I think these things are going to come back in some form at some point, but it, it could be a while. Yeah, I think it could be, especially like concerts and stuff. I think it could be a long while, you know. Damn. Um, so, what kind of kid were you? Like, did you your you know you said your dad worked in agriculture. Um, we didn't hear about your mom. Like, do you have a writerly parent or anybody with any kind of like literary bent that you were growing up with or around? Um, my mom is not a writer. She's a she's a pretty avid reader. Um, she reads a ton, and there are always a lot of books in the house. My grandmother, my mom's mom, was uh, an English teacher. Um, but no, like no real, uh, there was not like, it was not the most artistic household. It was like a very Midwestern household, you know, it was like, um, you know, the Simpsons and like little league and stuff. And so, um, we weren't, uh, we weren't going to the theater or the ballet or anything like that. Like, these are things that I, I discovered, um, you know, when I got to college, I think, and, and after, but I was, um, you know, I, I wasn't even really a, a super bookish kid. Like I, I read, you know, a little bit, but you know, I certainly wasn't thinking of ever about becoming a writer. I wasn't even like really reading that much. I was, you know, I was like into sports and I was really into skiing, um, mostly, which is, you know, not super practical for someone who lives in Iowa, but that's basically like what took me out to, to Colorado. And, and it wasn't really until I got to college that I started, sort of, you know, changing my priorities and, and thinking more about film. Like that's where I started that, you know, I studied film at college, started making a bunch of like little awful student films, um, started dabbling in a little bit of writing, but that's kind of when things turned for me. So where did you go to school? 
uh, Western State in Gunnison, Gunnison, Colorado. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. way up there by Crested Butte. Yeah, yeah, known as Wasted State, um, (laughs) which I've I've never never known if that's because um, you've wasted four years of your life going there or because everyone's drunk and stoned. But I think uh, both sort of apply. Actually, no, that's not true. It was not a waste of time at all. I loved it. It was great. Um, And, you know, I think – for the most part, it's what you make of it. But, you know, it wasn't like uh, there there was no real pedigree or anything. It was it was a state school. But I was able to, you know, start dabbling in film. And and uh, and like I said, I, I kind of taught myself how to edit a little bit. This was like right around the time when like digital technology was really taking off. And the school had purchased all these like DV cameras and like the very first nonlinear editing systems and, you know, none of the professors, like they were older, they didn't know. They were just like, here, you guys play with this. If you can figure it out, great. And so I just kind of like started shooting stuff, started editing stuff. And um, that's kind of where the the film stuff started. And then I moved out here to LA because of, because of film and spent, you know, a couple of years just like doing office PA work uh, worked on a couple on the sets of a couple films. I was which films? You know, I, which films? Oh, like little tiny indie films that you would never have heard of. Um, oh, okay. okay. Yeah, nothing of of note. But um, you know, I, I basically moved out to LA thinking I'm going to come out here and be you know a writer director. You know, it was like Paul Thomas Anderson was like my model. Like oh, that's what I'm going to do. You know, and it's just like I was just shockingly naive and uh i came out here and i was like all right who wants me to edit or uh, who wants me to write and direct their film and there was like yeah that's really not how this works <laughs> so i basically started at the bottom and then you know i worked on a, a film uh in uh joshua tree in july as like a pa like running around the desert and i was like this is awful <laughs> and i had to take um some footage to the the edit bay and I walked in and it was like dark and like 70 degrees and there was just this guy in there by himself and I was like that's what I want to do <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's kind of like what what prompted the the turn towards editing you just had heat stroke in Joshua Tree in like July yeah 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 I was like I'm done I hey, don't want to do this <laughs> and I want to say like you mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson who I think for I guess for guys of our generation you know he was kind of like the filmmaker he's like the auteur yeah. you know and he yeah you think about like he made boogie nights when he was like 27 <laughs> right 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 I, I remember seeing that movie because i and it's so weird too because like i studied film in colorado at uh, boulder yeah like what a weird like similar parallel track that we were on but yeah um i was also like not the most serious student but i remember being done with film school and looking at and going to see boogie nights and just being like holy shit like this guy's like just a few years older than me and he just yeah. made this film that's like better than just about anything I've seen in recent memory. Right. <laughs> and you you said like you came out here and you learned that that's not how it works, but like kind of worked that way for him, right? Like I don't understand. I guess he's just like like he was born here, he grew up here, he had some connections. Yeah, I think his dad worked in the industry if I remember. So I I think he had some connections, but you know, a lot of people's parents work in the industry like that's that's not at all. Like he's a great filmmaker, that's why, you know. So, right. Well, and did you know that he, uh, he went to like college yes, in abbreviated I, fashion. He studied under David Foster Wallace. Did you know that? Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. He took, no, like, I, he took I like, heard this anecdote about him going to NYU film school and he turned in, um, 
so, well, I may have this wrong, but my understanding was he turned in like some unpublished David Mamet um, yep. thing and, and they got like a C and he was like, fuck this, I'm out. And they walked out and he's like, these people don't know what they're doing. And so, yeah, he was he, he did the self-taught route. Well, yeah, he took the money, I think, that he was otherwise going to spend at NYU right. and used it to make like his first uh, short film or whatever that got him into Sundance. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, uh, these stories, it's great when they, it's great when it works out. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's great when you drop out of college and you go take the money and spend it on a film and then, you know, you wind up at the Oscars or whatever. But for every one of those, there's like the story of the guy that wrecked his life. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. He's got $100,000 or more in debt. Yeah, or just like uh, some shitty ass film to show for it. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually why I um, sort of like switched gears into writing. It was because, you know, I was I was writing screenplays and obviously like a screenplay is only valuable if it's made into a film. Like nobody reads unproduced screenplays for fun, you know, and that was the problem that I was running up against. It was like, OK, either you can try and, you know, go through the machine, the Hollywood machine and like, you know, be like every other you know person who moves out to L.A. and wants to write a movie um, but then I was like, well, I just want to tell stories. And so one day I just kind of this this idea I had for the screenplay, I just started writing it, you know, as a as a short story, basically. And I was like, A, this is way more fun because it allows for a voice, which, you know, there's no voice in screenplays. It's like super dramatic uh, instruction manual or something, you know. And so um, I, I basically was like you know, I don't have to rely on anyone. I don't have to, you know, find some financier to give me a bunch of money. I can just, you know, all I need is my time. And, uh, and so like, you know, this was, you know, probably like only 10 years ago, like I came, I started writing pretty late in life. And so, um, but yeah, it just seemed like a more, uh, practical way to, to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I feel I, I kind of made the turn when I was in college. I, even though I finished my film degree, I didn't want to like switch majors or whatever. But um, if you're writerly, if that's like kind of your lean, but you're, I mean, the logistics of having to get a film make, you know, to deal with all the people and all the money and all the different moving parts, that's like a specialized skill set. You almost have to be like an army general or something. Like, I don't even know. Yeah. And you have to be the kind of person who can go into a room and like be really charismatic and pitch and stuff. And that's just not me, you know, like I just, I don't want to have to try and sell people on anything. I just rather let the work speak for itself. And, and, and so much of, of Hollywood is, is having that sort of, you know, charm and the ability to like work a room, you know, and I just, it's not something I'm interested in. Yeah. It's weird. I feel like, uh, you know, I, I might have mentioned this before in conversation on this show. I can't remember, but it's definitely something I've talked about with friends over the years in L.A. is that uh, maybe to a degree that ex or I think definitely to a degree that exceeds books and publishing, though I'm sure there's a little bit of this in books and publishing, too, is that when it comes to entertainment and media and living in one of these like, you know, media capitals like Los Angeles um, or New York, but, uh, you know, thinking of like movies and television um there's so many people in los angeles vying for a limited number of seats at the table right and you know thinking about that sometimes just gives me like a migraine oh um, yeah or just like makes me feel depressed or something it's just like oh my god everybody wants the same thing 
I know. Everybody's like fighting for it. And then you'll look at these people who sort of work their way through the system and they get those kind of prized seats. And like sometimes it's a function of privilege and nepotism. Uh, other times it's like luck, you know, like I happen to be here when so-and-so was here. Like, But uh, the point that I'm driving at is that I feel like sometimes that the achievement is primarily a social achievement rather than like an artistic achievement. Yeah. Uh, like you think about uh, like um, what's that guy's name who was like the head of Paramount when they made the Godfather. They did. Oh, uh, he just died. Um, Robert yeah. Evans, Robert, Robert Evans. Evans. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they made the documentary about him called the kid yeah. stays in the picture. Yep. And it's like, he's at the Beverly Hills hotel when he's like in his, what his twenties or not. I don't know how old he was, but he was a young man. And he's like telling the story. He's like swimming in the pool at this fancy hotel and somehow somebody sees him and like, this is how he becomes the president of Paramount. He starts just schmoot. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. total, I'm totally, yeah. I'm totally botching the, the paraphrasing, but you know, it was, it was truly something like that serendipitous and weird. Yeah. Um, and so much of it just had to do with the fact that this guy could schmooze like, and was just right. a charmer and like, uh, quick on his feet and sort of like shameless in a, in a endearing way or something. Like, I don't know what it is, but like, I think about that as just an example of yeah. kind of what it takes. And then I look around and see, you know, showrunners or whoever these people are. And I'm like, hi, like what, what's the deal? Like yeah. they, they must go into a room and just know how to like, uh, it's like a, being like a car salesman or something. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends who work in the industry and there obviously of course are a lot of great people, but like you were saying earlier, like just the idea of like the, the living in LA and just everyone, you know, has an un, un uh, produced screenplay or is like at the coffee shop working on their screenplay. And it's just, the most depressing thing in the world. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't work it's, on, I can't work on anything in a coffee shop. I, oh, I, think, I can't either. Yeah, I think, I think, hard. I think generally I'm just not cut out for it. Like I don't, I, I could yeah. be in, I could be in, in like Iowa and I wouldn't want to work in a coffee shop, but right. when you're in LA in a coffee shop and like three you're out of, cliche. Yeah. yeah. And th <laughs> three, but three out of four tables, it's like, there's always like this table with like two bros who are like, yeah, no bro, no bro. In act two, <laughs> you just want to, you just want to like hurl yourself off a bridge. It's just yeah, like, I know there's something performative about it a little bit too. And it's just, I, uh, it makes my skin crawl. Yeah, I agree. It's like, they want to be seen like, yeah. writing and yeah. it's like, and and it's like advertising introspection too. It's like, keep it to yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Like the la when I'm writing, the last thing I want is anyone like possibly looking over my shoulder. You know, <laughs> you're like I can't. I just want to like intermittently work on my novel and then drink scotch and watch ballet in peace. Yeah. Please don't. Yeah. Is that so much to ask? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you, um, you know, you have this itinerant childhood. You've got kind of like an all-American youth. It seems like you have like siblings you get along with. Your parents seem solid. Um, like, am I, am I right? I mean, was it like, yeah. No, yeah. nothing, no, there's, there's nothing, very little tragedy in my life. <laughs> Good for you. And then you, uh, you said you got into skiing when you were in Iowa, like, did you do family vacations or something and get the bug or. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we were kids, we would go, we would go to Colorado for spring break and stuff. And, um, and then I would try and go skiing in Iowa. There's like a couple little small Hills right along the Mississippi um, there's one in Iowa that, uh, you get, you, you start at the bottom or you start at the top and there's like a hog farm and then there's, you get on the lift, which is pretty great. Um, but yeah, I went to, I went to 
Colorado primarily just to get out of Iowa and and to ski. And that's that's kind of what I did for the first two years. And then um, I, I had like a professor and who kind of like rewired my brain a little bit. And then I started getting you know much more serious about academics. And what do you mean? What do you mean rewired your brain? Just um, just like, you know, turned me on to certain books and and things that I hadn't really considered before and um, and just kind of made me look at those things differently. And uh, and that's when I started getting, you know, more serious about it. And that's when I decided that, you know, I didn't want to just as much as I love Colorado, I was like, I, I, I don't want to stay here forever. I want to go, you know, do other things. Well, there's only so much you can do in film and television when you're yeah. in, when you're living in Gunnison. <laughs> right, right. I mean, unless you want to work for the local news affiliate, like, yeah, there's your options are limited. So, so yeah, I I, I packed up and moved out here, and um, I've been here ever since. How much pot were you smoking in college in Gunnison? <laughs> uh, a decent amount, actually. Yeah. <laughs> You almost have to. I mean, it's like, yeah. what do you? What else are you going to do? But when you talk about it, I mean, it makes it. Yeah, I find it relatable. Like, and maybe I'm mis. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing it. So correct me if I'm wrong. But when I was coming out of high school, and like maybe this is a function of privilege, or maybe this is just me being sort of a jackass. But like, I just didn't. I just wanted to go somewhere, and I like the idea of being somewhere beautiful and being in nature. <laughs> I didn't have, I did not have like this, like, there's no ferocity to me at the age of 18. If oh, anything, no. I was just tired of doing school. Absolutely. I don't think, I don't think I even wanted to go to school. I just wanted to go on like road trips and like make friends, uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm always amazed at people and I, I, I'm, I applaud it, but the people who have like known since they were 14 that they were going to be a writer because that was just not me at all. Like, I mean, I like much like you, like my goal when I turned or when I graduated high school is like, A, get the hell out of Iowa and B, go somewhere where I can drink a lot and ski. And that was like, those were my priorities. And, you know, uh, they changed ultimately uh, halfway through. But yeah, I did not have this this drive that, you know, a lot of people have. Or like not even drive. I mean, it's drive, yes, but it's also like awareness. Like I feel like there are some kids who are just like really savvy and like know how competitive – yeah, the, the world is or something. And like, they're like, I got to go here and I got to do this. And yeah, no, uh, I did not know that. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know any of that. I had no idea, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I guess people might've been trying to tell me, but I just wasn't ready to hear it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my parents were great in that they, you know, I think they probably knew like, okay, maybe this is not cause like there are other schools I could have gone to. I almost went to Boulder and who knows, maybe our paths would have crossed, but, um, you know, there's other schools I could have gone to that were probably much better academically, at least in terms of, um, you know, their name or whatnot. But I didn't, I just didn't want, I just wanted to go skiing and they didn't really stop me. They didn't really say like, you should think about your future. It was just like, you know, you do what you're going to do and you'll figure it out. So, yeah, my parents were sort of like, you know, and I, here's the thing, though. Uh, my parents were great. I, I kind of lucked out like you did in that category. Um, just dumb luck. You know, you have great parents who are, who are supportive. Um, but as a parent now, as I know you are too, like yeah. my thinking on this whole idea of like you should just do what you love, 
Like, you know what I'm saying? Like pursue what you love and then things are going to work out. I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know either. As a parent, I don't know if I would be that, uh, permissive i'm not sure i mean it's like i don't want my kid to be like an accountant if she secretly wants to sing or something but like i, I guess what i'm thinking about is like man it's like it's good to get some sort of skills <laughs> um, right that like translate that you can fall back on or I, I, i'm sounding like the kind of parent that i would have made fun of when i was a kid um and there's a logic to this no, totally i know what you mean yeah, but there's a logic to what I'm getting at that is better articulated in some things that I've read, which is what got me thinking along these lines in the first place. But it was basically like, you know, you want to try to, um, you know, cultivate valuable uh, skills that translate. And then, you know, you can parlay that into the kind of freedom you want to pursue other things. And I guess that's kind of what you did. I mean, I feel like you kind of, yeah. uh, that's emblematic of kind of what you did. You got into this big machine and you sort of found your niche within it. Um, and you've been able to sort of create the writing life that you want, you know, wedged in there somehow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I realized pretty quickly, um, because like I said, when I got to writing, you know, I was much older and I sort of had a better sense of how it worked. And I kind of knew that like, um, I didn't make the mistake of like, all right, I'm going to write a book and just stay home and be a writer. Now I kind of knew that like, you're going to have to do something else for a while, you know, at least in the beginning. And so, you know, I always had the editing and I was, I, I never would give it up. I don't think even if I were writing full time, just because I enjoy it so much. I, and I like being able to switch gears. Um, but yeah, I think I learned pretty early on that like you better have a day job and ideally you enjoy that day job and it's fulfilling in a way um, because, you know, you just you're going to you just got to do something else, too. You know, well, you got to pay the bills, you know, and exactly. Uh, yeah. When you uh, you you left college right after graduation to come out here. Is that right? Yeah. Right after I graduated graduated i came out that summer and, and you were gonna uh, make started, you, you were gonna make boogie nights but then i was gonna make boogie nights and then someone beat me to it but <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and then it was this joshua tree experience as a pa where you suddenly like entered an edit bay and that was when the sort of light went on for you but did you have to go through any kind of formal training to learn um you know how to edit or were you just self-taught you just got in there and sort of monkeying around I mean, in terms of like the the software and the you know the technical skills, I that was all I taught myself. And at, during this time, I was making like with my friends, we were making like little short experimental films and stuff. Because um, you know, well, you, a lot of my friends actually went to school uh, at Boulder as well. And as you probably know, like Stan Brackage was like the big uh, guy there, and so everyone came from like an experimental film background. So. We were all making these like super weird sort of experimental films. And so I taught myself um, the software that way, or at least like how to edit technically. And then I eventually got a job as like an assistant editor and worked under this guy who kind of took me under his wing and was kind of a mentor. And um, he like in time would sort of throw me like little smaller things to edit and I did that long enough to where I got to the point where I built up a, like a sort of a portfolio and then I was able to just kind of like transition into editing. But, you know, like a lot of a lot of people in editing, they'll spend, you know, 10 to 12 years as an assistant 
Um, but I was fortunate in that I, I made the transition pretty quickly. So, you know, I was, I was actually like cutting, uh, pretty soon after I decided to, to go down that road just by meeting people. And I guess you met the right, the right guy, somebody who, who actually yeah, in, I, invested I, in I, you. Right. I met this guy and then I spent like many years working for IFC, the independent film channel, cutting stuff for them. And then, um, and then after that, I kind of started doing more longer form stuff and then got like a, a feature and then that led to the next thing. And, you know, it just, it builds and you meet people, you know, over the years. Is it, a, are you in a union? Like do you have to be in a union to be an editor? Um, you don't have to be, there is a union. Um, it's harder for doc editors to be in the union. It's mostly for like studio films, the big movies and stuff, but um, most of the projects I work on are non-union, so I'm not in the union right now. What is the uh, what does it say after? Like I'm I'm thinking of like when they roll the credits on a feature film, and the editor's name pops up. What are the what is the acronym? Oh, yeah. ACE is that what it is? ACE. Um, yeah, it's a uh, Association of Cinema Editors. I think I could have that wrong, but it's I think it's Cinema Editors, something like that. So that's like an that's like an indicator that they're a member of the union or something. No, that just no. That doesn't mean they're in the union. That that's like a um, sort of like an honor that is bestowed upon. I don't know precisely how you go about getting it, but it just signifies that like you're really good at your job. Why don't you just start tagging your shit with that? Just be like, Brady, yeah, that's Brady. a great idea. <laughs> yeah, that should be on the cover who's, of that should be on the cover of your book. Who's gonna who's gonna yeah, debate yeah. that? Exactly. No one's gonna look at that. <laughs> I'm gonna start calling myself Brad Listy, comma ACE. It's, I mean, it's, yeah, not, it's a totally. nice acronym. <laughs> um, so you said you just mentioned that if you like you wouldn't quit editing film, even if like your literary career like took off somehow, like your book sold a bajillion copies. Like um, you think that's the case? Like, do you have a plan or do you have some sort of aspiration to only be the writer of books? Or do you think you found this kind of sweet spot between the two? I don't know. I mean, I think uh, ideally I would spend more time writing but I just know myself and I know um, when I've spent, you know, two or three or four months working on a book, you know, all day, like I just I like being able to, like, get out of that space for a little bit and, and do something else as long as it's, you know, creative. But um, so I think I would I think, you know, in a perfect world, I would write most of the time and then just be super selective and, and only do projects that I'm really passionate about it, the editorial projects, at least that I'm really passionate about. But it, you know, I don't think I would totally ever abandon it just cause it is, um, it's fun. I enjoy it. You know, there's something about, you know, seeing it come together. Um, and just, you know, there's things you can do with it that you just can't do with a book. You know, there's, there's the music aspect and just the visuals, obviously. And um, I don't know. It's just when you see it coming together in front of you, you know, when you there's nothing there and then you're just building these little pieces and it starts to take shape and 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 it's kind of like, oh, that's pretty moving. Um, I don't know. It's it's really gratifying. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, like the authorial responsibility is not as solitary. Like it might not even be in not might not even be really yours if you're working with a director. Um, like obviously right. you have, you have some responsibility in helping to build the thing, but it must be nice or I'm imagining it must be nice to go from like being alone with your book and sort of wrestling with it and trying to get it whipped into shape. And then you switch over and you're working on somebody's film and you yeah. get to kind of be part of a collaboration, part of a team. And like the buck doesn't 
stop necessarily with you, right? Which is actually yeah, no, kind of nice. <laughs> it's great. It's really great. Yeah, I mean, you you know, you get to work on this thing, and like you said, you feel a certain ownership, but um, you know, you're also not the one who has to answer for it if everyone hates it. So <laughs> that's kind of nice. you're like, don't blame me. I'm just locked away yeah. in this seventy hey, degree man, uh, closet. Just, <laughs> yeah, I'm just a cog. I'm just, you know, I'm just one man doing one part. So, um, so okay. So, where are you spiritually? You grew up in the Midwest. You're Midwestern stock. Um, like, did you grow up like Lutheran or something? I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Catholic. Oh, you were. You and me both. Yeah. I think. I think Brady's actually. I think you actually are me. Uh, this is the well, uh, there's, the, there's the big only reveal. One there's only one letter that's uh, separating us, Brad. So it's like, you know, we're right there. So I, yeah. So Irish and German, I guess the Catholicism was coming from, from mom's side of the family or no, it was coming from both sides of the family. Yeah. Both yeah. Um, super Catholic. I mean, my dad is one of seven and my mom is one of nine. So um, my mom you know, is one of nine. The whole, the whole, uh, yeah, again, the, the, <laughs> the parallels are, are eerie. Um, yeah, you know, like big Midwestern Irish Catholic, German Catholic farm families, you know, who don't practice birth control. So, and also need people to work the land. So, damn. So how did, what was your relationship to Catholicism growing up? Was it contentious or was it like a non-factor? Were you totally devout? It was like, I mean, I think probably like a lot of kids, it was, um, you know, I went to church every Sunday, like super begrudgingly and did all the things you have to do like begrudgingly and you know i like church was just like an opportunity to like look at cute girls and stuff but um so i was never um super like taken with it or anything but i do think like in even most of my youth i i do think like in the last few years especially since my son was born like i mean i, I don't know i i have a con i'm conflicted like I, I probably find myself actually coming back a little bit um, in a way, um, but it's still like, you know, it, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I feel that way. I think like, I think where I'm at right now, and it, you know, it shifts, you know, well, it shifts with the wind, it seems like, but I, like I'm never going to be like a Sunday church going Catholic or anybody who identifies that way, but I do feel a certain gratitude for the fact that I was raised in a tradition that at least made like, like um, it made grappling with big questions and it made like, you know, tending to one spirit or whatever you're going to call it. It made it a priority and yeah. I'm, I'm kind of botching this, but like I, I'll go back to the Michael Jordan documentary just cause it's fresh in my mind. I've been watching it. But uh, there's a part where they're, where the coach, Phil Jackson, um, you know Phil Jackson, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he's talking about his youth, and he was raised by, like, I want to say, like, ministers. Like, his family was, like, super religious. Um, and, of course, now, like, Phil Jackson is, like, this, like, you know, sort of like the, uh, he, like, incorporates, like, like Sioux Indian mythology. Right. You know, he's got, like, this whole yeah. like, spiritual bent that's sort of uh, woo-woo or... Uh, Eastern religion or, you know, he's got kind of a, a new agey kind of vibe to him. But mm -hmm. I, I related to like him talking about his childhood. I think that framework is there. Um, but then he just kind of put his own stamp on it. Like I'm not ungrateful for having that be on my mind from the start. Um, 
it's a shame it wasn't a better fit. <laughs> yeah, uh, you yeah. know, but I think like I do think it's important. I guess that's the point. Like I I don't like the idea of just like having nothing. Not not that totally. I mean not that you have to have some like super hardcore dogma, but just like you know, it is worth like pondering what the hell's going on here. Uh and if yeah. you if you do that in the framework of a religion, I guess that's great or if you do that just by like reading and thinking and getting into like astrophysics, that's cool. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but, um, I, I think I feel like some, uh, af like affection for that particular, um, like strain of, uh, tradition in my family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, it's everyone, you know, you're going to worship something, whether it's like your own ego or your, in, your intelligence or your, your, your physical looks or whatever. So, um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that. I think for me, um, you know, with the, the Catholic thing, like that's, that kind of thing just gets ingrained in you when you're young and you can run as far as you want, but it's always sort of there, you know, the, the Catholic guilt and whatnot. And, um, you know, for me, I like a couple, like a few years ago, sort of, um, started like learning more about like just the whole history of the Catholic left, you know, and like, uh, Dorothy day and the Catholic worker movement. I don't know if you're familiar with any of that, but that for me was like, Oh, okay. It's like you said, putting your own stamp on it. It was like, here was this sort of, um, you know, other take that I don't think people uh, or is, is known, um, just about a more sort of service based, uh, form of Catholicism. That's less about, uh, you know, um, abortion and more about, you know, servicing the poor, you know? And for me, that was like a sort of entry back in a little bit. Um, at, at least it was like, okay, here's like a, here's a new, a new take on that. Or it's not new, but new to me at least. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I feel like the Christian left, um, like we have, we've, we hear so much about the Christian right, I feel like, and the, yeah. the Christian left, like I'm, I've always said, you know, you, I get lost a lot when it comes to dogma, like a, much of it. And the, like the mythology doesn't really interest me very much, but, um, sermon on the Mount I'm into totally. like, that's, yep. you know, be merciful, uh, yep. help the poor, like all these kinds of messages. I don't care what religion it's coming from. Like, that's always going to resonate with me. Um, I yeah. just, I think like, I feel like, you know, so much of the, uh, so much of it gets, you know, distorted or the priorities get out of whack and people become so consumed with like one or two issues and it becomes this kind of like emotional, um, I don't know what, it, what you'd even call it. just like emotional black hole just kind of ruins the whole thing yeah. for me. Um, right, right. Yeah. It gets hijacked a little bit, which is unfortunate, but well, yeah. So does, what does that mean though? That you like, it just means that like you've softened in your views towards it or does it mean like you like, or like maybe I'll go to this church or, or no. I mean, I've actually been, go I, I've lately like, uh, been going to church every once in a while. Um, I, ch not every Sunday. Um, but I've been like just dipping my toes back into it. You know, I just think like, um, you know, it's, there's something about the sort of, um, uh, just focus and reflection. I mean, I, you know, you can get it through meditation or whatever, but I guess I've maybe just been sort of going back into it just because, um, that's what I grew up with and that's what I know. But, um, I don't know. It's just a, it's just a way to sort of clear my head, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. Do you take your kid or no? 
Um, I try to just because it's like you said, I, I, I don't know what the right way is. Like, I, you know, my parents were great in that, like we went to church, but when, once we left home, you know, we'd come back and they would say, we're going to church. And if you want to come, you, you can, but you're an adult and you'll do whatever you want to do. So there was, there was never any like, uh, you know, real strict, like, you know, this is what we do. This is, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know, like if you're not introduced to it, how do you find it? I mean, maybe you find it naturally. I don't know. So I'm, I'm conflicted like about how much of it, you know, I want to expose my son to, like, I feel like ultimately he's going to do whatever he wants to do, but am I obligated to at least, uh, you know, show him, you know, that it's here and then he can decide. I don't know. This is where I'm at on it for what it's worth. Mm hmm. Because I think about this, you know, any, any parent, I think, thinks about it at least a little bit. Like, what's the what's the right move right? Um, in this, like, realm? And, like, I think when it comes to big stuff, whether it's religion or philosophy, like, religion and philosophy in particular, where a person's worldview is really defined or can be really defined and a person's morality can be really defined— I am hesitant to put my children too deeply into any institution that um, could leave a big mark because I don't think when it comes to a person's faculties, uh, it seems like judgment is the last to really develop. (laughs) At least that was the case for me. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like when you're maturing, even when you're in college, like you might have your wits about you and you might have certain faculties in place, but ultimately like judgment, I feel like that maturity comes late. And so I think like, I think that's why churches love to get their hands on people when they're young, because you can really imprint on a kid when their mind is like, uh, absolutely. So the Catholic church is particularly uh, good at doing that. (laughs) All of them are, you know, that's the, that's the whole (laughs) shooting match. Get them in when they're young and we can, we can shape them. And then, you know, it's hard to shake. You and I both know that even though I'm not practicing, like, like you said, it's hard to completely uh, divest. Like it's always sort of lingering in there somewhere, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's bad to expose a little bit and to just at least say like, Oh, this exists. But I kind of want those kinds of decisions uh, to be made when my kids are older, if that makes sense, I want them to be able to go into it with like, you know, more of their, uh, their wits about them instead of being like, instead of being like eight and like thinking about the devil or something (laughs) like I was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think like when we go, uh, which is, you know, not super frequently, but it's always, I try and frame, he always asks why we have to go. And I'm just, I just say, you know, it's just, to say thanks to whatever you feel like you want to, you know, whether it's God or whatever, it's just a show of, of humility and, and gratitude and, and that's it. And we leave it at that. And, you know, like maybe nothing will come of it. I don't know. You know, he's going to do what he wants to do when he grows up, but it's, it, it's at least, uh, I feel like I at least sort of showed him this thing and then he'll figure out what he wants to do with it. You know? Yeah. 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 No, I like, I just, I, t- I sent my daughter to this Episcopal school, and she, uh, I remember she came home. She's like, well, God, he was this and he was that. And I'm like, it's not a man. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. What are they teaching you? You know, just like, I, yeah. get, so, I get so worried, you know, I don't want but her. The, like... But that's the, the funny thing too about, that's the great thing about like 
the Catholic worker and all these sort of Christian left things is I went and uh, volunteered. They have like a soup kitchen down on Skid Row. And I was always curious about, you know, what it was like. And so I went down there one afternoon and, and volunteered. And it was just, I mean, it was so different than any, my conception of like Catholicism. Like it was uh, basically like, you know, Hey guys, we're going to say a prayer. If you want to do that, great. If you don't, that's totally fine. And it was like, uh, you know, everyone was, uh, calling out things that they're like wanted to pray for. And it was just like, uh, the end of, end of patriarchy and all this stuff. And it was just like, well, that's, the, uh, that's Los Angeles. That's like big city stuff. I feel like maybe in, <laughs> in Iowa, you're going to have a harder time finding that group. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that's cool. No, I think like, I think that there's going to be room for that sort of stuff. Like I didn't, I, you know, I didn't realize we'd both been raised Catholic, but I'm glad we got onto this line of conversation because I feel like you have this infrastructure built, not only with Catholic, you know, with the Catholic church, but with any denomination, you know, like there's already all these churches in these communities. Um, you know, you might as well like put the community to good use. Like, I feel like there's, there's opportunity to sort of like, you know, move off some of these more like entrenched cultural battles and make the thing yeah. uh, a more useful, like immediate, like human to human uh, exchange. Right. Yeah. I mean, that would be great. You know, just more about like a service to the poor, you know? So what are you, uh, what are you working on now? Like you've got film stuff, but of course the pandemic has kind of fucked everything up. And then um, are you, I guess like most people, are you using this time to like work on a book or at least get things started in a new direction? Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I've been working on a, on a second novel for the last few years. So I'm trying to get a first draft of that done. Like I'm close to the finish line. So I'm hoping that with this sort of pause and, and edit, editing work, I can hopefully at least get uh, a draft of that done. And, um, and then, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I was, the project I was working on was about an Olympic athlete. And so that sort of came to, uh, an obvious halt. And so I don't know what, what is next in terms of the edit work, but I'm enjoying the time off to just focus on writing, which has been nice. What is that? It's, what is, it's hard to get work done, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. But what is uh what is like a first draft of your novel look like? How messy are your drafts? Um, they're at least on a sentence level. I feel like they're pretty clean. I mean, I think there's things that you just can't see, you know, story points and stuff. Um, so there's a ton of revision, but, um, I definitely like, uh, I, I'm one of those people who sort of labors over each sentence and, and goes, I, I takes me a long time to write just cause I go pretty slowly. Um, so I think like when it's done, it, it feels fairly polished, but then of course there's always work to be done. All right. What's the name of it? Do we have a title? I don't have a title. I'm terrible with titles. So, um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. It's untitled second novel right now. <laughs> untitled second. And how does it feel like to have this first one going out into the world after all the work that you put into it over all these years, and you get an agent, and then the book goes out, and like, was it a was it a quick sale? Did it take a while? Like, what was that part of it like? Um, the sale was yeah, pretty quick. It, I spent a long time looking for an agent. It was rejected by. I don't know, like 30 or 35 agents before I finally found one who said yes and was super enthusiastic about the book. And, but it was also like, we have a lot more work to do. And so, um, 
I spent like I think I said I spent almost two years working with her on the book and then finally um, it was in a place where she's like all right I think we're ready to go out and so she sent it to I don't know five or four or five or six editors um, and I think that was on a Thursday and then she heard back I get actually the next day I think she said one of them was reading it was really liking it would be in touch uh, on Monday and then she and then Monday she got back to me and said um, the editor's interested she wants to talk so we talked on Tuesday and then on Thursday we had an offer so basically exactly a week it was after like waiting two years and wondering if this was ever gonna happen then it happened all at once damn and who's your agent um, Emma Sweeney, but she just retired uh, in January, and so I'm now working with um, another uh, woman at her agency, Margaret Sutherland Brown. Okay, what's the agency? Folio. Oh, okay, cool, cool. I love yeah. stories like that. So, but it took it takes a long time, but then it just takes one. You know, not just one yeah. publisher, but one agent. You know, somebody who yeah. sees it. And right, right. you get into this two-year editing, you know, editorial process. Once you'd actually sign with the agent. Um, I, I imagine the book went through some pretty significant changes and improved. Like, do you feel oh, like, yeah. like that was a crucial part of the process? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did. I don't think I realized like how hands-on she would be, but it was, it was great. I mean, the book, the book as it was when I submitted it to her, like I'm almost certain never would have sold. So, you know, she is the reason the book exists and, um, yeah, her work on it was, was invaluable. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy for you, man. It's great to see this happening. I hope that uh, you know I feel bad, especially for people who are debuting. Um, I, I wish you could be out, like you know, touring the country and having your moment in the in the uh, <laughs> in the bookstores and everything. But I guess yeah. this, this is going to have to suffice. I guess I'm. This your, is it. This is yeah, it right here. <laughs> it's it's fine. You know, we're all in this in the same position. So, um, yeah, it's less than ideal, but hey, you know, there's a lot worse problems to have so that's right I'm, I'm grateful more than anything that i that i got to publish a book so for sure man well congratulations to you it's great to connect um you know i guess i'll just have to uh, like go through my life and i'm sure we're going to continue to exist on a parallel track and <laughs> yeah I, I can't wait to see what the future holds for us Brad. yeah i know we're in this together dude um, yeah, really all right <laughs> well listen good to talk with you congratulations thanks Okay, guys, that is Brady Hammes. His debut novel, The Resolutions, is available now from Ballantine Books. Go get your copy. You can find Brady online at bradyhammes.com. Once again, that novel is called The Resolutions. One of the more critically acclaimed debuts of the year. This podcast is offered freely, all episodes, more than 650 episodes and counting, all available for free. Support the show if you so desire. Just go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to write to me, my email address is letters at other PPL.com. Don't forget, too, that this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. It's a free app, the Other People with Brad Listy app, available wherever apps are available. 
Thank you to Grey Wolf Press for sponsoring today's show. Be sure to get Postcolonial Love Poem by Natalie Diaz, the new poetry collection from Grey Wolf Press. So it feels like, you know, everybody's talking about this second wave. Oh, I should mention, too, that my conversation with Brady Hammes was recorded prior to... Do I need to date this? It was like in COVID, but pre-George Floyd. There are a lot of interviews that I recorded in that little window of time. So I just want to flag that, just in case you're wondering. But uh, as far as uh, coronavirus goes, it feels like uh, we're in some kind of insane phase. All these people thinking that it was over. It's not over. Then there's all this talk of a second wave. The first wave never ended. So be careful out there. Wear a mask. Don't be an asshole. Protect people. Protect yourself. Wash your hands. Socially distance. Register to vote. Get your shit together. Make sure you register. Make sure if you need an absentee ballot, you get one. Right? Okay. Come on. Let's do this. (laughs) 